strategy, design, marketing, UX, digital, development. This is Agencies That Build. This show is dedicated to leaders and teams that design and deploy in the digital world. My name is Jesse, and I'm a marketer and an agency owner. And I'm Varun. I'm not a marketer, but a coder and an agency partner. This show is sponsored by Together We Ship. On a mission to help agencies grow. All right, rock on. Here we are. Varun, my friend. I absolutely forgot to set up my mic. I'm not sure where it is in my office right now. So you're getting headphones today. Just realized. Um, are you ready for, di- I've been looking forward to this conversation. Are you ready for today's conversation? <laughs> I'm absolutely. I'm so excited to have our guest for today. Um, who do we have? Today, he is a visionary leader driving human-centered design at the forefront of the company's mission with extensive experience in almost three decades in strategy, user experience, content, and service design. He not only cultivates new client relationships, but also guides projects personally. And we'll talk a little bit about that, actually quite a bit about that. Um, A passionate advocate for teaching and coaching, he empowers individuals by Harnessing the power of human-centered design, his knack for facilitation, team coordination, and captivating public speaking, making a sought-after sought conference speakers. Woo, need some more coffee this morning. I'd like to welcome our guest, um, or this afternoon, whatever time of day it is, um, the president of New City, which is an interactive design agency, David Poutit. David, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jesse. I really appreciate it. It's a joy to be with you all today. We're happy to have you. And I'm, I know we're both looking forward to this. So let's dive right in. Our myth-busting question. What is some sort of bogus strategy, myth, uh, misconception that you would like to set the record straight on? Well, I think one of the things that we encounter a lot, uh, you know, we'll, we'll talk more about human-centered design and what that kind of means for us. Um, it's been a really important part of our our growth as a company. But um, a lot of times the organizations that we work with will invest heavily in brand strategy and kind of brand positioning and that sort of thing. And they, they miss out on how important the digital experience is in really shaping and impacting their brand. And that starts to do that well. It starts with human-centered design. But a lot of um, a lot of things that we've seen, you know, as you mentioned, I've been doing this for a few years. Um, and uh, over the years, we've seen this evolution of how people have thought about the user, the, the people, the humans at the, at, that we're creating these things for. Um, and we've seen kind of in that evolution, we've seen it kind of go from uh, usability is just something that gets sprinkled on at the end of a project. Um, maybe it's sort of paid lip service to, you know, if you have a more engineering forward um, operation, uh, a lot of times there's just a lack of understanding or of people having not having experienced the how empowering it is to really see to have your engineers see your users try to use their products you know um or you, you know in our world uh, thinking about uh, about higher education what how what a difference it makes to watch a parent struggling to try to figure out how to pay their their child's tuition at your university <laughs> and the, that kind of eye-opening moment where they realize that 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 how easy it is to pay your tuition is part of the brand experience. Um, and that's that's like down in the weeds, but also like as someone comes and they're trying to understand how they might be able to study music and continue their interest in music while also uh, pursuing a degree in biomedical engineering. Um, and what is that experience like for them as they start to engage with people in the department and people in different groups? And that, you know, usually that part of the journey is is not touching all the cool flashy brand stuff that that is done. So we we I think our the the, the myth that we want to bust is that these things exist like in in separate compartments, you know, almost and and really helping um, organizations see it all as a whole and see that whole user journey as the it's the whole if you're if you're coming at it from a marketing standpoint, it's the whole brand experience, right? It's 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 brand strategy. If you're coming at it from a you know engineering and development standpoint, it's about you know creating a sustainable, scalable, you know, well-engineered, um, you know, platform and experience that that is going to customer adoption is not going to be a problem because people are going to love using it. Um, it's it's all of those things, kind of seeing them together. So we've just tried to bake that in right at the heart of everything that we do, um, instead of making it something that's kind of bolted on or an afterthought. Part of your 
part of your process. I was going to say something deeper. Yeah, you yeah, I've already certainly. said it. You know. Yeah, it's it's a core skill set that we kind of expect. We have UX people on our team, but we expect everybody on the team to really kind of understand and and value it. Human centered design. Let's let's dive into that as a as a topic because I think it's something. I know as we were prepping for this, I mentioned I had seen it. I've yeah. seen it like a lot recently. Um, of course, I can't remember. It was probably my doom scrolling at two in the morning. Um, <laughs> but yeah. it was, um, you know, talk to us a little bit about how you guys, how do you, you know, define that? Let's let's start with some basics there. So people, you know, will level set how people are understanding what that means. And then maybe get into a little bit more from there. Can you give us that, like how you guys define yeah. that? A definition. I mean, it it is approaching design from a place of trying to understand the the context of the the people that are going to be using it, and even the people that are going to be managing and you know and building and providing the service. But the people that are going to be using it, what's their story, right? Where is this new solution that we're bringing into the world? Maybe it's a maybe we're trying to make a better thing that that we're building that's already exists and we're trying to make a better version of that or maybe it's something completely new how does that fit into their story um what's their understanding their mind their sort of um mental model as they approach it uh but you can't you you know as soon as i start talking about that well everyone has their own story and so you've got you know all these unique stories so part of the practice of human-centered design is learning how to conduct research in a way that you get enough insights from a cross section of your user base that you can sort of triangulate on a solution uh, that is going to be the optimal solution for the most people that you're serving. You know, you can't design something specifically for, if I designed a solution that was just for Varun, then, you know, it might be great for him, but not work for everybody, everybody else. So you're always trying to kind of balance that, but, um, but it's giving, you know, the, you, you're and you're not doing academic research necessarily when you're starting a human-centered design initiative. You're not going to be publishing papers on it, but you've got to get enough insight that you can go into the design process and you're you're sketching and you're prototyping. You're doing all those things, but you're actually thinking about real people that you're creating for. And you're not just um, the, the default posture that most of us adopt if we haven't developed some of these skills. And everyone can develop these skills. These are not just for specialists. But if you, the default posture that we tend to adopt is designing for myself. It's a reflexive design process. I think this is the tool I would use. You know, this is the site I would use, how I would think of it. This is how I understand it. I imagine that other people probably think about it this way, what have you. Um, and so the people that are naturally better at human-centered design are the people that are that have some direct interaction with a customer on a regular basis, right? They're, they're watching, they're, they're talking to, they're hearing from them. But you know, a lot of times people in our organizations, um, and, and often it's the, the, the people who are building the software uh, or writing, you know, like, you know, who are actually making the thing, don't have an opportunity to have that direct exposure. So a lot of human-centered design, uh, here I'm, I'm channeling uh, one of my gurus and friends is Jared Spool, who's one of the kind of original UX uh, uh, leaders. Um, but he says like the single most important thing is to get your team to actually get them closer to the user, get them to see what's happening, get them to actually, you know, just watching a usability test and seeing a few people go through and work with the product, uh, going out, going out into the field and, you know, you're designing a piece of software that someone's going to be using, actually go into their office and see, you know, or get on FaceTime and actually look what's on their desk, what's happening, what, what other distractions are happening around it. You know, if your dog's running through your, your uh, room while you're, while you're hosting a podcast, <laughs> you know, hasn't happened yet, but right. you probably will. <laughs> exactly. Well, it's, it's interesting to hear, like, so my very, very, very early on in my career, there's uh, I worked at Vistaprint when they were teeny tiny. It was about 150 people. Yeah. We did a lot of the printing out of the basement of the sure. building. That tells you how early it was. And it was the first time, you know, usability testing wasn't like a thing they taught in school at that time. You know, so I had never seen it before. I had never heard it before. And my role at the organization was to project manage what they called the content team. So it was the team building the templates. We were interacting with all the departments and we actually, I knew the designers who designed the business card. You know what I mean? They had to yes. like put it on the product and all of that. And what was really interesting is we had a room where we would have users show mm -hmm. us based off the website. And this is um, um, 20 years ago now. Um, sure. Yeah. 
but you could see them actually. And while it wasn't directly impactful on my role within the organization, I had to manage the team who it was. And so I was like, well, can I see that? Like, can I watch? And it was one of these, as you're describing it, I'm like, oh my God, that's what it was. That's what they were doing. That's, you know, we called it something different at the time, but it's, it's what I, what I'm curious to ask you about is from an agency perspective, Mm -hmm. how do you know, it makes sense, you know, as a product leader within an organization, you know, from a SaaS technology or whatever it is, you're talking to clients or customers and things like that. As an agency, how do you get in on that? How are you guys conducting? What does your process look like a little bit there? Can you like open up the wizard curtain? Um, Yeah, sure, sure. So yeah, our process, uh, so we are always working with some group of internal stakeholders who um, want to get better at understanding their users, their audiences, and they want their web presence or whatever the thing is we're making to be informed by, you know, they, they everyone loves the idea of human-centered design, but they don't necessarily know how to, to do it. So we end up coming along and being, you know, involving them in the process and kind of coaching them, helping them to see, help demystifying it a little bit and just helping it teams. So we start with a, a stakeholder, you know, engagement. And um, a lot of that is trying to suss out what their expect, what their, um, what they think they know about their customer. And we'll even do something. One of the exercises that we'll sometimes do is called ad hoc personas. So we will create personas um, that are based on what the leaders within the organization think they know about their customer. Some, you know, like I said, if they're really heavily involved with their customer on a regular basis, they may have a pretty accurate sense of it. Um, but we treat those as a hypothesis. So we're going to go out then and do research. And usually that research involves both some qualitative and quantitative research, but qualitative UX methods are things. I mean, the, 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 the classic is some, some form of, um, uh, call it contextual inquiry. I'm going to watch you doing the thing. I'm going to talk to you and interview you while you're doing the things that my product is relevant to, right? Yeah. Um, so, well, and like I, as much as food pos- stores, they have the camera watching people and where they shop and they charge by shelf, you know, that right. sort of right. thing. Right, and of course there's the sort of, you know, there's the stealth version of that where you have people that are walking around and secretly observing or you're watch- using cameras and what, what have you, but we're doing it, you know, usually on a, a Zoom session or sometimes when we do service design, you're doing field studies, you're out, you're out on site traveling around and, you know, and talking to people while they're in the middle of it. So that um, now you've got to do enough of those to to um, to get, a, as I said, a kind of a cross section of, of customer experiences. Um, and then uh, we use a, an approach to analyzing that qualitative data. It's called grounded theory if you want to look it up, but it basically you're going through and you're coding um, and pulling out insights and you have a coding you know, system that you're using to decide, not coding like programming, but coding as in tagging um, uh, different observations that you make in the process. Um, and you, you're pulling that data out and you're synthesizing it in some way, right? And so an important step for us is to wherever we can to involve our customers, the stakeholders in the, um, in the <laughs> I describe it as chewing your own food, right? I mean, this is like, they don't learn if, if we just give them a di- fully digested report, right? We've done all the chewing, we've done all the thinking, and we hand them this thing, and it can become another bookshelf ornament. Um, back when people delivered printed reports, uh, <laughs> but um, but if we give them something, if if we involve them along the way, at least it's you know at some level they're starting to really see, and you start to hear them talk. It cha- you you know you're starting to win when you hear the words coming out of their mouth, what we saw people doing, you know, Robert had this problem, you know, uh, Juanita had this problem over here, you know, it's, it's like we saw these different, different settings. Um, and so that we will, there's lots of ways to synthesize that, that learning, because you can't just leave it in that raw research form. The, the next step for us is to uh, usually to create some kind of a journey map or uh, an experience, like also called an experience map. Um, or uh, depending on the context, we might create a service blueprint, which is a an expanded, or it's a it's a kind of customer journey map, but it it really ref, uh, reflects the um, 
the things that the humans who deliver a service experience are doing and what techni what technologies and systems are required behind the scenes to support that customer journey. Uh, so it helps you see, okay, here's what we want, here's what the customer is doing. And it can be a current state thing where like this just reflects what's happening today, or it can be a, um, a full, like, here's the vision of the future and what would it take for us to get there? So you can use that for like a gap analysis. Um, but a lot of those, those synthesis, those forms of um, synthesizing the research into some sort of visualization and, and personas, like you could, you could take those ad hoc personas I talked about and then create a new set of personas that sort of, you know, say, okay, here's what we thought we knew and here's what we, what we learned, you know, and we, now we've got a fully fleshed out uh, research-based set of personas uh, that can, that can inform how we design. And then, you know, how do you take that stuff and apply it to the design process? Well, you know, that's, you know, now you're really, cause we've so far we've been talking about research and that's the, the next piece of it. You ask about like what our process is, you know, it's, you, you have a lot of tools and way, approaches, but um, a design sprint is a great example. If you've heard of, you know, the five day design sprint or the design sprint model that Google Ventures um, pioneered. That's an example where you would come into a design sprint equipped with all that user insight that you'd gathered. And now we're going to, we're going to focus in on these two or three areas of kind of problem areas for the customer. And we're going to sketch and we're going to prototype and we're going to make something that works. And on Thursday, we're, we're testing, you know, and Friday we're, we're, we're reviewing, you know, so you can, you can design, um, you can design design experiences for your team that get you uh, working with that, um, those user insights uh, in a way to you know, come up with, with, with new ideas and involving, you know, if you can, and you want to involve a user, involve customers in the, at least the testing process, but some organizations will even involve, um, involve them in the, in the uh, design process. We've done that before as well. So, so th this is quite interesting. I mean, the, of course the research is the, I think the base behind human centric design methodology, right? Mm -hmm. You need to start, everything start with that. Um, and you explain in a very clean and easy manner for anybody to understand what goes behind at least the way you project it. Um, I'm curious to know as an agency, like how, so, Two things actually, has this approach always been the core or heart in your agency? Like this has been the standard method from day one or has that evolved over time? And as it has evolved or over, even it, you lead with that, how did your team take it? Because it sounds like, so your focus is mostly on in higher ed, right? As I understand right. correctly, you yeah, are in, in that market, right? That's right. So building applications or marketing websites or what type of work have you focused on while using this approach or has that made any difference for you? Has it helped you in your positioning? I know there are a lot of questions that I just put <laughs> into this, but um, I, I hope you understand where I'm going with this. I'm trying to understand how this, how this, process help you with sure. your positioning and giving the direction to the team to focus uh, in this market? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, the, so it has been an evolution. Um, you know, we started when I started New City in 1995. Um, I didn't even know what human centered design was. I was a designer. I had a degree in design. Um, I had started out in engineering, so I kind of had, a, you know, had about three years of an engineering degree and then I decided I didn't really want to be an engineer. Um, so, but I had that kind of engineering problem solving sort of mindset, right? Um, and in the late, so in that second half of the 90s, the early days of the web, uh, it was a really interesting time where there was a, a huge emphasis on um, doing stuff that was just cool and eye-catching and mind-blowing and, you know, uh, a lot of agencies were, you know, winning awards for doing stuff that you, you know, you go to use these sites and you're like, this is amazing. You're like, How, where, what can I do? Where do I even go? <laughs> you know? <laughs> so it wasn't always, there were lots of flash sites back in those days. Um, and, uh, I mentioned Jared Spool before, but I actually went to a, a conference talk, um, uh, in 1999 in San Francisco, uh, that Jared gave called cool doesn't cut it. Um, and it was about usability and understanding like, uh, website usability and kind of bringing the, the 
um, some science back to the art, right? And think about how to really understand people. So that was a, a light bulb moment for me. Um, as an agency, um, and, and I understand a, a lot of times, you know, it helped that I'm the, was the president and founder and was getting, you know, interested in human-centered design as a, as a differentiator for us and just the right way to do things. Um, but a lot of times people get turned on to UX and they're not in that position where they can really influence the direction of the organization. And, but in our case, um, uh, we started sending people, I started going to conferences, we started doing professional development, learning these methods, and it, it began there. Um, we, but, you, but we were at a time where we, uh, in the work that we were doing both, we weren't really heavily into higher education in the first half of the 2000s. It was, it was kind of the second half that we started to break more into higher ed. Uh, but our first big higher ed project was for Virginia Tech in 2006 as my alma mater. Um, and up until that point, we couldn't find any examples of a university that had actually used user research, market research, yes, but like true usability user research uh, as part of its web strategy, web you know design process. Yeah. And so we proposed to Virginia Tech to use, to do, uh, we were using a, a mental model approach to user research. Um, I think I still have the, the, the book on my shelf that uh, Indy Young, who's a, a, a fantastic uh, UX leader, uh, wrote this book years ago. There's a, uh, uh, we, we, were, we were featured in, in the end as one of our examples. It's from some of our work after Virginia Tech. But, uh, but we, we said, hey, you're a research university. Wouldn't it be cool if we use some research to inform your strategy for your web presence? And they loved that idea. Uh, but but it was an uphill climb for a while, kind of persuading uh, institutions to invest in research. You know, you've probably heard this. If you've worked in digital for any length of time, people will say to you, um, you're the expert. You're supposed to know this stuff already. Right. right? And all the time. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that's the, the posture. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The whole posture with human centered design is we don't know. We need to learn, right? I mean, I am, I have to be curious and, and get to know your customers. So, uh, so that balancing um, that with your target audience, too, you know, as you're talking about human centered design, not to, to completely interrupt, but it's oh. like the struggle between who your buyer is versus who's actually the user of it. Yes. You know, it's like yeah. and there's I just want to point that out as we're chatting through it, because we're we're really talking about the end user who's not always the person giving you a credit card or that you're marketing That's to. Exactly right. And I think there's a differentiation from an agency perspective to our advantage. We can ask that of our clients that says, OK, who are you actually buying versus who's using it? You know, yeah. Varun may be, you know the owner and he's the one handing over the credit card, but let's say I'm the actual user mm -hmm. in those cases. You're not marketing to me. You have to market to both of us in those cases. That's been um, a big shift for us in our thinking in the last say 15 years is what exactly what you said, Jesse, but well, at least from the standpoint of like, we're thinking when we're talking to human centered design in the higher ed space, you know, it's easy to just think, well, we're talking about students and families and alumni and, and, research and stuff like that. But um, oh, my power just flickered. That's awesome. Um, Thanks for an interesting episode. <laughs> yeah, I've got my battery back up ready. We're going to stay. We're going to keep rocking whatever happens. Um, so uh, but what we what we started to realize, we would focus on like the thing we're selling is the website. So we're, we're thinking about the user as the as the those audiences and we're delivering you a finished website. Well, we've come to realize that's not actually what our, we're not in the that's not our, our product and it's not our, our customer are the people who actually have to run and manage the presence for the university. So even though we're helping them design for their users, we're having to think more and more about our users who are the people who are going to have to deal with the content management system, who are getting pressure from all these different directions. And content governance is a huge question in the Harris was everyone saying, put this up on the website, we won't do this, you know, do this initiative. And, and if you don't, if you're not equipped with um, some ways to think about what should or shouldn't be on the website and how should it be organized, like we need to, we needed to focus more on empowering those people, giving them the tools, but really giving them more like playbook, um, you know, how to, how to approach um, these things, if, if we, were, we were ever going to have a hope that the websites we contribute to are going to, you know, grow and improve over time and be sustainable and not just become a, 
you know, a place where entropy sets in on, on the second day. So that's been our journey, I think, in the last, um, in the last, uh, you know, 10, 15 years. Um, Varun, you, there was another part of your question that I don't think I quite got to, which is kind of like how our team, um, so maybe you can just rewind and yeah. ask me another yeah, question. Yeah, so, so, the, so, I mean, as a leader, right, when we are, we want to have an approach that this is what our agency is focused on. This yeah. is how we yes. want to move forward. So you have certain um, thought process behind that, but when you want your team to follow that lead, right? When So how did you structure that team together, which allowed you to have the same, everybody think alike, especially when you are, you know, a full service, you do, I assume you also do some engineering and dev as well. So yes. at what yeah. point, do they come in and how do they approach this mm. type of design? You know, because your design team yeah. is doing the research and building the prototypes and wireframes and mocks in the first place. Yeah. And then your engineering team comes, but all the thought process and design thinking that have been going through in the initial phases, yeah. how does that communicate to the engineering team to the make sure that, that also um, they understand that too? Yeah. So we, we, we've gotten to a much better place on that, but I think we've gotten there by failing at it a lot, you know, early on. And, and I say failing, I mean, we, we successfully completed projects, but, but we were like a lot of firms, uh, certainly in the 2000s, where it was more of a waterfall approach of the planners plan and the designers design and the developers develop. <laughs> and yeah. they, you know, you don't question what came before, right? There's a spec document that's delivered to you and you, you know, uh, and and so you know more and more you're kind of wringing the 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 thinking the strategy the creativity out of the people that are downstream in that waterfall approach. Um, so we, you know, in, in as part of our just kind of reflecting and talking to people about what they liked or didn't like about working at New City um, al along the way, we kind of recognize how much people wanted to have more of a seat at the table and kind of be involved in that process. And we've had such a culture of being builders we don't we we've we've always felt like it's because there's some agencies like that do human-centered design or do the kind of stuff that we do that just do the strategy right they just they they do the architecture and then they it gets handed off to somebody else to build and we've always found like like any art or or engineering or science right a lot of the the um the innovation happens as you build Right. You're figuring things out. You're realizing things yeah. that do or don't work. You're coming up yeah. with new ideas and it continues to evolve so that the, you know, the thing that you make at the end has very much been shaped by the development process. And um, right. so believing that we tried, started trying to figure out how, okay, how do we actually make that a reality in the way that we work together as a team. And I, so a lot of it has been just basically saying um, we want to we want to. I mean, it's not that our our developers are doing as much planning work as our UX people, but they are at the table at the beginning. They're involved in the prototyping process. They're seeing the research too. We're getting their input in our sort of shaping and thinking about what we're going to make. Um, there, there's a feed. There's a good feedback loop. We've you know our, our process is not rigidly waterfall. Um, uh, it's not fully agile either. When we talk about more about that, I think we're going to get into that a little bit. It's the next um, question, but yes. <laughs> um, but it but there's a there's a the flexibility that's built into it to keep kind of evolving you know what we're making based on input from the whole team so um yeah i think we've we've tried to build a culture where where our engineers feel just as valued and as they've got as much of a voice in what we're making as as our senior ux strategists do i think that's an important point and differentiation in terms of you know part of what's what works for you guys with this you know mm -hmm. everybody having a seat at the table um, I was going to ask the other question first, but I'm going to ask this one first, you know, around how do you, you know, for our listeners with having, it's just a lot of, how do you avoid a lot of cooks in the kitchen, I guess is, is what I'm trying to ask with, with your process. Like, how do you guys actually, you know, between documentation and PMs yeah. and internal feedback loops and reviews, like, is there one thing or two things that you have found? that you know as strategists strategize mm -hmm. and engineering implements mm -hmm. how does it how do you get the cohesiveness between the two of them communicating before things go to the client Ooh, that's a really good question 
<laughs> I'll vamp for another minute. I guess like, is there, is there one or two tools that you have found or are there one or two things that you found that just sucked? You know, like let's flip it the other yeah. direction. And you guys are like, look, you know, I, we found that like online project management tools suck for us and we really need to meet in person and we need printouts and everybody has to have them yeah. stapled, you know, or that's, that's what I'm looking for is like, what's the nugget? Um, or what's the nugget that you're like, that's coal. I'm not touching that. <laughs> well, one of the, the, we, so we've designed, uh, some, uh, key junctures. We've designed experiences that the team has at key junctures in the project where we bring people together intentionally to make sure everyone's fully engaged and is really picking things apart, questioning, thinking, thinking together. Um, and you know, a design sprint is an example of something like that. We don't always do that for every project, but when it's appropriate, we, you know, we do. Um, and, uh, but another one is that, that uh, is called a component review where we've, where we've, um, we've got kind of wireframes and, you know, the front end design system is, is pretty well fleshed out. Um, and rather than handing uh, documentation to, the developers and just saying like here's the spec go build this we have a, a workshop <laughs> and it's intense we go through every piece of everything we talk about what variation so there are printouts and there is a meeting <laughs> yeah there, but we're not but it's all remote of course so no, it's all I'm you know, joking yeah, yeah kind of. it's a virtual whiteboard but it is basically yeah. yeah we when we were in an office we did we printed everything out and stuck it on the wall and we talked through every little piece of it and figured out what you know the variations and what the implied functionality because there's all this I mean, Varun, I'm sure you're no stranger to implied functionality in a in a wireframe that the architect thinks it's obvious what this is supposed to do, and the engineer interprets it one way, and it was totally not oh, yeah. what the architect had in mind. So, yeah. So we've we've and we've gotten better. It's it's always about what what kind of communication is effective in the moment, and will then also lead to retention, and people will be able to come back and refer back to it. So we're doing things like that. We're doing a lot more to sort of glue together our whole, um, uh, you know, we, we use Figma and um, Storybook for our pattern libraries. And then we use Drupal and WordPress as some of our tech stack elements, but, um, but we're gluing a lot of those pieces together so that there isn't such a divide between the tools our designers are using. So one very, one very, very simple tool that we have found that has started working really well for us internally is, and um, you know, I don't know many if I haven't heard from other companies who do that the way we do it, but at least I like it very, you know. Uh, so basically, it's whenever we have to communicate the requirements, right? Sure, you can have the wireframes and Figma and put the documentation, but the work, the thing that has really worked well for us is making use of the loom video recording tool mm -hmm. you know so people you know we started asking everybody and everybody's like it's such a simple thing just record yourself explain what did you expect yes. from this hear the thought process right because that's what people want to hear they don't want to know what you want them to do they want to hear how how is this requirement coming in the first place so if you're creating a design if this box needs to be here, why does it need to be here? What's the problem that you're trying to solve? And the best way to communicate is, especially after COVID, when everybody's not together, yes. you know, it is super simple. Just record a video, record yourself, share the screen, and it doesn't take more than five minutes. And such a handy and quick way, people yeah. don't think of that, this, that, that way, you know. So I, I think Loom for us has really changed the way we communicate and work internally. Um, Agree. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Another thing important about that example <laughs> is there's always a story, right? There's always a story behind the thing, why this box is here and what it's supposed to do. And when we write specs, we often kind of remove the story. We just, here's the exact exactly. what you know what it needs to do. But when you explain something like in a video or you're in a meeting, You'll often, you, without thinking about it, you'll just tell the, you'll explain the story. Here's why yeah. we're doing this, and here's what happened and led to this. You know, and it's like, oh, okay, that makes more sense now. Or wait a second, what we could solve this in a slightly different way. Would this, would that be possible? And you're like, 
I never thought of that. That's a great idea, you know? And that's what you want to be happening between designers and devs. Well, it also changes your tone, you know? So if you think about classic creative process, when you're writing, you know, creative briefs coming back to design and you're saying, hey, make that, I want that to pop more. It's like the worst thing anyone, it's like, what does that even mean? Like, what do you mean pop more? You're not, you're, it's easy to put that in yeah. a text or an email, but if you have to record a video and be like, look, I'm not really sure about this section here. I feel like something isn't working for me. I don't really know how to solve this. It allows you to express and communicate to your peers and colleagues in a way that doesn't feel like you need to make this pop more versus, hey, I don't know, like this isn't working. It'll, you know, and I feel yeah. like it fosters that the human centricity of the communication behind how yeah. you're working together yeah. internally exactly. so because you can't hide behind an email like yeah you're providing the verbal visual feedback and yeah you know, kind of why we do a video podcast version of this too it's you can hear the tone yeah. you can see people's voices and work through it i want to ask another question um about inspiring not inspiring but so you you see how the how the technology, you know, technologies are changing every day. Now, yeah. we as a leader, I think I, I ask this question to everybody and I, I, I'm still trying to figure out myself, like, how do you find the balance between making sure your team is learning, learning the new technologies, keeping up to the pace of what's happening in the world, but also being productive at the same time, because you cannot like, do you have a system in place? How do you find help them find that balance where they're learning at the same time they are making best use of their time for the client's work because we are in the service business. How do we ensure that is happening? Well, um, a part of it for us is just setting our expectations. We give our team members each get a week of professional development time that, that they're encouraged to spend every year, which is meant to be more like go to a, take a class, you know, we can't afford for everybody to go to an in-person conference every year, but usually every two, you know, three years are going to do some kind of in-person experience, but we want them to actually have some time that they can plan ahead, be, you know, shut things off. And then we expect that part of their, um, you know, when we look at our utilization goals for how much billable time somebody's going to do in a week, and then, you know, internal team meeting time and other things like that, there's, there's some padding in there for them to spend some time, you know, tinkering with things, but I guess it's, we, I don't know how intentional it has been, Varun. Uh, we've got a lot of tinkerers in on the team, people that do like to try to figure out a better or faster way to do something um, uh, or figure out some, you know, and, and so we, we've, we've always encouraged a, you know, some degree of experimentation, even within kind of project time so that you're, you know, it's, we, we will decide you know, it's up to the project manager to decide how much of that time we end up billing to the client. If we don't feel like if it was, a, if there's a bunch of time and you're, you're going to be, you, you have to manage a budget. And if there's a bunch of time that we spent that, yeah, it was down a kind of a rabbit trail and I, I can't really, you know, that's not really focused on that client. So we're not going to bill it. We also build in a certain percentage in our financial model that we expect to have kind of write downs or on a project where some, some of that billable time we know is just not going to get get captured and so we try to try to allow for that to happen and we and we recognize it and and celebrate when people figure out new things um i mean we have we have a guy on our team um he doesn't work for us full time anymore so worked with us on contract but he was he started out with us as a freelancer and then um while he was working for us uh he worked with us full time for about a decade um he uh learned drupal right and he didn't know drupal at all when he came and then he um, became a, you know, senior level Drupal engineer. Um, and he just was always working on stuff behind the scenes, creating new Drupal modules and different things like that. And I can't tell you how many times we went looking for a solution for some problem in Drupal. And we find out that Andy's the maintainer of this, of this module. So we're like, oh God, where does he find the time to do this? Um, but yeah, so we just try to encourage him. You know, we have folks that are involved as volunteers in, um, in the, like the uh, higher education web community. And we try to make time for that too, because it's just good citizenship for us to be giving 
giving back. So when it, when that R and D or when that some of those efforts can then be part of you just sort of generally contributing to the to the community, um, it's it's never hurt our business. I don't think. I mean, it's, if anything, it it demonstrates the clients want because I mean you you know I mean this the, the way that we build websites or web applications it's every 18 months right it's it's like it's yeah. new if yeah. you're not if you're not putting that time in then you then your runway is is you know you're you're, t you're less than two years from being out of date so you just have to yeah. keep spending yeah yeah it, it, it's it's sorry go ahead oh, no you go i was gonna pivot <laughs> give your thought um i i, I was just going to ask on follow up following up on that response is you know keeping it's so important for us um to make sure the team is learning and growing because if they're not they get stuck especially specifically if we keep giving them the similar type of work every yes. day every night mm -hmm. they just feel bored and that's one thing that i found you know, I'm here, I, I would like to ask every agency owner who, who are in this B2B space because technology is changing, but their clients are not expecting, you know, any such thing. Like they want you to, uh, you know, make sure you provide the best and the latest the and latest. greatest technology, right? Yes. So at the same time, you want to maintain your profitability, right? I mean, by yeah. having the team up to the speed. So it's kind of, does both the job if you keep, give them some time you know we and in our company we try to give them 20 percent of the time for their yeah. you know you know for their own learning that they can use and then every month we group and just have everybody share what they learn and then a demo day kind of thing right exactly so their personal project kind of thing right where they are just related mm -hmm. to what they're in in their field but learn new learn something new approach or something new and how they're applying that to the clients work that really helps and just share the knowledge among uh, among themselves yeah i think what you say is key where is, is if you build something into your culture into your you know what you measure and track where you expect them to be spending that time and it's 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 um, encouraged and celebrated that's key yeah. however you do it i think it's important yeah i want to i want to pivot for just a, a hot second because it's this is an interesting talk around business methodology and it's something that we talked a little bit about in our, our prep before this episode but you know having chatted with so many agents owners and there's you know we've even mentioned a couple here between agile and a few others how i know you have a lot of strong opinions on some how do you figure out what works for you and how do you how do you how do you go about that you know based off your experience and your your growth mm -hmm. here can you talk a little bit about that for a minute yeah i mean we've just we've had we've had so many um so so one of the challenges that that you have as any business owner if you're in this for any length of time is that you will see all kinds of different models and approaches to doing the work um and we started out as a digital agency. We didn't, I mean, we didn't even know what to call ourselves back then, but we didn't, there was no template, right? There was no model. So you, we did just have to figure out how to do this kind of work. Um, uh, you know, the, the, the model that a traditional advertising agency would use um, did, made no sense in our world. So we kind of threw out the playbook and just started figuring things out. And over time, you know, that's evolved and, you're, and you see a lot of commonality across agencies now um but i've made the mistake i don't know it's a mistake i hate to say it that way but i've we have tried to you know several different to import several different variations of methodologies and things and obviously we've imported a lot of methods in human-centered design that have stuck and that we've we've used we've always you know had to figure out how to adapt and make make them our own but um i think one of the most important lessons jesse that i've I've been reflecting on this more just in the last, um, even the last few months about um, there's a, there's a lot of great wisdom out there in the business community and in, you know, digital agencies or digital you know shops. Um, and people have learned important lessons and they love to share it. And that's great. And some of them publish books and some of them put on workshops and seminars and do coaching and teach you how to follow their methods. 
Um, and there are, you know, uh, operating system models for running your business, uh, you know, EOS or Rhythm or Rockefeller Habits or different things. Um, there's Agile versus, you know, we I talked about Waterfall before, but, you know, mm -hmm. there's different approaches to software development. Um, and it's those, those, those things by themselves, they, they, all of those ideas grew up in a context, right? They grew up in some kind of business and somebody, maybe then they sort of a coach took some of the ideas that they had some success with and they started teaching some other people to follow them and they had some success and then maybe they wrote, they wrote a book um, and started started spreading more. And there's a, there's a lot of great stuff there, but you do have to really understand your own people, um, your own customers, um, your own kind of economic engine. I mean, uh, you know, I think the I think ultimately it's Jim Collins when he talks about the the, the Venn diagram of the three circles in um, Good to Great or Built to Last, one of his books about the, you know, what are what what are you passionate about? What um, are you uh, can you make money doing? And what do you uh, what are you the best in the world at? Or what do you have the you know potential to be the best in the world at? And the overlap of those three circles is kind of your your hedgehog concept, right? It's the, it's yeah. Like the idea. And you I guy. Yeah, I like Ikigai more than that. I mean, it's similar, yeah. but I think Ikigai enters some more factor. But yeah, go, go, sorry, go ahead. But you have to understand all those different dynamics. And I have made I have made the mistake of importing a model into New City before without fully understanding those dynamics, thinking that, you know, you know, I had, uh, I, I can tell stories, but when we were talking about the, ad, the Agile question, you know, we are not a software development shop and we're not an in-house software development shop. I am very familiar with and have been through and have worked on agile teams. I understand the rhythms and methodologies, but what we do and the way that we work with our customers is a is a difficult fit for a fully agile, everything we do is agile kind of environment. Uh, but I know people that are super hardcore agile evangelists and think that, that everything, if you're planning your wedding, it should be done with agile. <laughs> whatever the case is um but uh you know we had to we we adopted a methodology um got some training and try to bring in a methodology around that um and and went pretty far down the road with trying to kind of turn our company into like everything we did was going to run on, on an agile rhythm and we we um came to there were some there were some differences both in terms of how involved our clients are in the in the work process and how dependent we are on a on a um, uh, close integration with our client teams. So we couldn't. There's a lot of variables we can't control about what's happening within a sprint, for example, mm -hmm. uh, with our clients. That made it you know challenging. Um, some of the agencies that we look we observed that were doing really well with this model and making a lot of money, like really strong profit margins, doing this approach. Were actually followed they were doing much smaller projects than we were and they were much more repeatable like the same kind of almost a templated not a templated website but a templated kind of solution approach so they would take their clients through the same steps every time you know to do these projects um and so the they basically had like pre-planned roadmaps and if you've done real agile development you know you don't you don't you don't roadmap, you don't write all the stories for everything you're doing yeah. nine months from now, right? You have, yeah. it's a rolling, evolving, you know, evolving thing. And you've got to have this flexibility about what the ultimate scope is going to be. Um, and in our, in our market, our clients are very particular about what scope they're going to get at the end of the process. And we yeah. have to sign a statement of work that says you're going to get these things, right? So, yeah. you know, but it was just a, we learned a lot of stuff from that. Right. And there were valuable things that we that we pulled from it. But I think I've I've learned to take a minute, all right, give myself a beat to take a to to study and think. Cause man, you can you can end up you know, you can lose a year or two of of good operation and profitability by you know running headlong into a, a, a different methodology. Oval peg into a round hole. Yeah. Well, they look just similar. Right. They're not quite yeah. working. Exactly. Exactly. Well, we have got, this has been a great conversation. I have one, one last question for you. What's exciting you about the future? Oh yeah. I'm looking forward to this question. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> so what? So we've been working with 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 uh, web, you know, for a long time on, on the in the on the higher ed side of things, and um, we are building up in our practice um, a, a expertise with some um, new members of our team, uh, more around the service delivery experience on uh, during the enrollment journey uh, specifically. So we don't right now do um, much with the actual classroom experience, but we're uh, but a lot of our web content's been focused on the on the um, uh, the perspective kind of external audience journey for uh, for a lot of universities. So we're um, we're trying to bridge these two worlds of both what's happening in digital and what's happening in the real customer service experience of bringing that expertise together and helping teams kind of bridge and create this this um, you know in real life and digital kind of. Uh, melding of strategy so that our the schools we work with are, are really delivering a more um, integrated, seamless, whatever word you want to use, holistic, um, you know, experience for their um, for their students and families um, that ultimately results in in better engagement, better brand awareness, and that for us as a digital agency, kind of moving out into the real world and trying to blur the lines between what we're doing in digital and what we're doing with folks um, in real life is, is super exciting. And it's, it's service design, you know, that's a whole nother topic, but that's, um, it's a, um, an area that I, I can't wait to see how that starts to shape how we think about what we're doing in digital and starting to, you know, create new solutions that don't just, um, that don't just involve a website. Well, thank you so much for your, your insights and your time today. This was a very interesting you know, you never know where it's going to go. And so we oh. ended up in a couple spots. So, um, but this was great. So thank you so much. For those thank you. Think, and so for those of you listening where you can find David and he's on LinkedIn, he's on the Twitter and the Instagram. Um, and then your website is insidenewcity.com. Yes. So, and uh, that's it. So that's it, everyone. If you learned something today or left, please tell somebody about the podcast. Thanks. Thanks for listening. Find our other episodes on agencies that build.com. Plus we're listed anywhere you find your favorite podcast.